Well, welcome, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you today. And can you hear me okay, everybody? Okay. Can you hear me online? They can't answer. But listen, it's good to be with you all today. And we are actually in the third week of a series on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, something I just want to start with is just think about this for a second. One of the laws of nature is that the old always gives way to the new. I am old, and there comes a time when we all have to make room for the new and to the next generation. And it's like that in technology as well, where the old gives way to the new. And I just have one example of this. I want to see how many of you have ever used one of these devices. Anybody? Okay. Anybody ever use one? Now, some of those young people here today, do you know what that is? That's called a telephone. And you used to have to dial the number four, zero, and then we'd have to return, you know, and it would take a while. Um, and that's been replaced by what we call the new, which is something that looks a little bit like this. And uh, this is uh, an iPhone uh, for all of those, those of you that like Androids and that sort of thing. Uh, you probably don't appreciate that image. But uh, anyway, that's a product by Apple. And this uh, iPhone has replaced the telephone. But it's new in a different way than many of us imagine. It's new in kind. And we're going to look at how the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus announced at the beginning of Mark's gospel was new The gospel is literally good news, and news is always new. Now, that word for new is not neos in the Greek, N-E-O-S. It is actually kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. And that word kainos means it's new in kind. It's actually a quantum leap forward. It's something completely different. Just like the digital phone devices have now replaced the old rotary phone. It's a different kind of new. And so when it comes to the church, we often ask this question. And I I meet with a lot of pastors and people like that, and we say, we talk about revitalizing what we would call a dead church, a church that's really dead. Um, And there's just no life in it. And they say, well, how do we revitalize a church? And sometimes churches can be revitalized. But something that we used to say, and when I was studying church planting, I I planted a church in 1989 here in the city of Calgary at Skyview Community Church, and Stuart Williams is the current pastor of that church. And I remember hearing the expression in reference to, you know, should you revitalize an old dying church or should you start a new church? And the expression that I heard, which has stuck with me, is it's way easier to give birth than to raise the dead. Now, some of you ladies here might argue with that say, well, you don't know what you're talking about because you've never given birth. But um, God was always and still is about doing something new. Yes, we do have the ancient traditions, but God is always refreshing things and bringing them forth in new ways, in novel ways. Um, When I felt called to plant a church in the city of Calgary in 1988, I was in seminary in Kansas City, and I felt uh, that it was really important for me to obey what I believed was a prompting of the Holy Spirit in my life and to start a new church. And I had the opportunity to stay in Kansas City and to become an associate pastor there full-time, make more money, actually. We loved Kansas City. Uh, Absolutely, it was wonderful. 
And, uh, but we felt called to go back to Calgary and to start this new work with no people. And, um, and that's what we did. And when I was studying this and praying about how to start a new church, one thing that I learned in probably a deeper way than ever before is that God is all about new ideas, new methodologies, and God makes room for new technologies. Very interesting. A lot of times people are very suspicious about new technologies, but guess what? When the radio was invented, missionaries latched onto it, and they had gospel radio. They had missionary radio. And we've always, the church has always seized onto the new. That is just part of what it means to be Christian and to be a missionary in the world today. Um, and so we have to find new ways of being the church. COVID has accelerated this, really. is We were always, we're always talking and praying about new ways of being the church and reaching out to our community. But now it's been accelerated because of COVID. We have to pass the torch to the next generation. That is part of the responsibility of people like me, is those of us who've been around the block. This isn't our first rodeo. Uh, we've been here. We've got experience and wisdom to pass on, but we need to pass that on to the next generation and make room for them. So I believe that God has gifted and called everybody in this room. We all have unique gifts and unique callings. Some of us are called for really great works and, 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 and might become very, very well-known and uh, you know, maybe stand on a platform like this. Others serve maybe more behind the scenes in quiet ways. But all of us are gifted and called to do the work of the Father, the Father's work. Jesus said, you know, when he ta- spoke of himself, he said the Son can do nothing of his own initiative. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. We're called to join the Father in his work in the world. And that's what Mark's gospel is about. So Pastor Trent brought us two messages already, um, and we've gotten through to the end of Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start with Mark chapter 2. But with Jesus, we see the kingdom of God, God's rule, coming in power. And that power is expressed, not politically. It's the power to heal, the power to restore, the power to liberate the power to to bring hope to the hopeless. And the main focus of Mark's gospel isn't so much his teaching. The gospel of Matthew focuses a lot on his teaching, but Mark's gospel focuses a lot on the things that he did. It's, It's really the gospel in action. And one of the questions that Mark's gospel is trying to answer in a big way, and this is a thread that continues all the way through Mark's gospel, is not so much the things he said and did, even that, but it's who is this man? Really, that's the question. Jesus once asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they had a response to that. Who is this man who speaks with such authority? Who is this man that can heal the sick, set the oppressed free, raise the dead? What is it about this man that marginalized and hurting people are so attracted to him? So Mark's gospel is all about Jesus and Jesus in action. And there's a strong sense of movement in Mark's gospel. One of his uh, favorite words to use, and Pastor Trent pointed this out, is the word immediately. And immediately this happened, and then this happened, and then immediately that happened. And so there's a strong sense of movement throughout this gospel. So in Mark chapter 2, 
Jesus had gone about all these different villages preaching the gospel and uh, healing the sick and, and setting the oppressed free. But now he returns to Capernaum, which has sort of become his new hometown, his headquarters. He ret- returns to Capernaum, and his reputation precedes him because he had already done a lot of stuff. And the crowds around him are growing. His preaching had the weight of authority. It was backed up by miracles and works of healing. But then there was his compassion. He really stood out because of his compassion. He was more interested in meeting the needs of people than in following the rules of tradition, Jewish tradition. And it's kind of interesting. Jesus was without sin, and yet sinners were attracted to him. Think about that. Our holiness, if we think of ourselves as a holy people, should not repel people. It should draw them like a magnet. People were drawn to Jesus, to his compassion, and to his love. And now, because of the increasing size of the crowds, the claims that Jesus made about himself as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, uh, and because of his apparent disregard for Jewish traditions, Jesus was gathering a group of enemies around himself as well. And so in this passage that I'm going to speak about, Mark chapter 2 and then going into chapter 3, there's five narratives, there's five stories that we're going to look at really quickly. And don't worry, I'll get through them quite quickly. And they're ones that many of you know. But as we read through these stories in Mark chapter 2, and you can open your Bible if you want, there's this, uh, you can feel the tension growing as opposition mounts against Jesus and against his teaching and his works. But I want to really pivot this whole uh, message around one particular verse. And it's found in Mark chapter 2, verse 22, and I'll just read it for you. Where Jesus says this, and he's using a metaphor of wine. And he says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. He's giving us a message as the church. He's saying, we, with the gospel of the kingdom have in our possession new wine. That's a metaphor for the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus and what he came to do. He said we must put it into new wineskins, just like the rotary phone becoming like an iPhone. This is something completely new. It's new in kind. And one thing that we're learning as we read through the gospel of Mark is that the old and the new, in many ways, are incompatible. So somebody once said, the seven last words of a dying organization, does anybody know what they are? What are the seven last words of a dying organization? I know know Pastor Blaine knows them. We've never done it that way before. Jesus came into the world, and he was doing things in a completely new way. He was kind of turning everything on its head as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned. And this is a unique feature of Christianity. In Christianity, we always are exploring new ways of being 
and new ways of doing. That's just a part of the fabric of who we are as a people. Some of you don't like this maybe, but you know what? I love the old hymns. And when I go to like our garrison service, which is a, a service that a senior's residence near here, I love to sing those old hymns. I love to harmonize. And I, I know most of the first verses, at least, of those hymns. But I got to tell you, I am so happy that new music is still being. What would it say about us if nothing new is ever being written? Can the same Holy Spirit who inspired Charles Wesley hundreds of years ago to write some of the great hymns of the church Is that Holy Spirit still here and with us today? Can he still not inspire people today to write new hymns and new songs of faith? Yes. New translations of the Bible are always being published. New methods of evangelism and missional outreach. New forms of communication. The church is learning how to use digital media. Media. We did not have a live stream until COVID hit. And we were caught flat-footed and we seized upon that. God actually doesn't just allow that. I think God wants us to do that. So Jesus didn't come just to patch up the old. He couldn't just simply graft the new onto the old or pour the new wine into old wineskins. It just wouldn't work. So if you don't remember anything else from this message, just, just think of this. Is God's future, his kingdom is future, but it's already here. It's future, but it's now. God's future is now. God's kingdom is here. And Jesus is making all things new. And he wants to use you and me to do that. So as we look at this uh, passage beginning in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, we see a, a, a paralytic, a man who's paralyzed. He cannot walk. We would probably uh, call him, you know, just a paraplegic. And, and he can't walk. He's dependent on other people to, to be mobile. And he believes that his paralysis is, is somehow related to some sin that he committed, or maybe this is some kind of bad karma, something he had done to deserve this. And Jesus comes, and the first thing he does is he doesn't heal him. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. But the Jewish leaders, in verse 7, they go, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They did not know who Jesus of Nazareth was. But Jesus answers them, and he says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, I want you to know that the Son of Man, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And what does Jesus do? In verse 11, he says to that man who was paralyzed, who could not walk, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. And the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of everybody, and the people were amazed. But Jesus' opponents, they represented the old ways, the old system of things. They just didn't do stuff like that. Oh, there was lots of teaching, but nothing quite like this. And they couldn't understand or accept the new way of the kingdom of God. And they were somehow intimidated by Jesus and what he was able to do. And then we see the next story, beginning at verse 13. 
Jesus comes to a despised tax collectors. And the tax collectors in the Gospels, we know that the tax collectors were despised because they were corrupt, many of them. And they worked on behalf of Rome. And they would collect taxes, but they would overtax and they would pocket the extra. They were greedy. And Jesus comes to a man called Levi. We know that Jesus somehow knew what was in the heart of people. But he comes to this man called Levi. And my guess is, reading between the lines, is that Levi probably thought he wasn't good enough for God. I wonder if there's anybody watching this or here today that would say, I don't think I'm good enough for God. Because you know what? The truth is, none of us is good enough. Not without his grace. And it says here, as Jesus walked along, verse 14, as he walked along, he's walking along, he sees Levi sitting at the booth. And he's, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. And what's interesting about this, Jesus did not call Levi to repentance. He called him to discipleship. Those two words, follow me, were a call to discipleship. Jesus invited this man to become a follower knowing that he was not worthy. And then he takes it further. And he goes to Levi's house for dinner to fellowship with Levi and his sinful friends, hanging out with the wrong crowd. And yet, there's no indication in Mark's gospel that Levi had yet come to a place of full repentance. And so, in verse 16, it says, when the teachers of the law saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said, why does he eat with these kind of people? Doesn't he know what kind of people they are? And then Jesus just says, you know, who needs the doctor? Those who are well or those who are sick? He said, I came for sinners. And I've, I've, as I was preparing this, I, I thought about who would a Levi be today? Who are the Levi's of today? I think it would be somebody who might be a pimp, a pornographer, an abortion doctor perhaps. Would Jesus spend time with people like that or would he first wait for them to repent and then spend time? I think we know the answer to that. So I came across this in preparation. I want to thank Trent for, I, I borrowed some books from Trent's office with his permission. And um, I came across this. And uh, one of the authors of this book said this. If I lived in India, I would invite untouchables into my home. Had I lived in the deep south in the 1950s, I would refuse to sit at the whites-only lunch counter. If I were an Israeli, my living room would be filled with Palestinians. Oh, how simple it is to be courageous and Christ-like when one is merely an observer from a distance. 
And then the author goes on. Maybe it's important for us. Listen to this. This is so rich. Maybe it's important for us to grasp small and seemingly insignificant opportunities to break social boundaries. For instance, when our church, and this person's referring to his own church, when we stand, um, they host something called, uh, like a homeless shelter. And he says, we do not make the clients in the homeless shelter stand in a cafeteria line for their food. No, we serve them at their tables as honored guests. Then we sit down and eat with them instead of isolating ourselves in the kitchen. Maybe in some tiny way this demonstrates the kingdom of God to our world. It's counterintuitive. But that's what Jesus did. He came to say everything about the kingdom of God is new. There's a new way, a fresh way of being the church in the world. Jesus violated social boundaries, and that made people really mad. And he did it because he wanted us to know about God's grace, that nobody is beyond the reach of God's love. Nobody. So then in Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, we see that John's disciples, you know, they were fasting. They were observing one of the fasts. And the Pharisees are doing one of their annual fasts. And they're wondering, well, why don't Jesus and his disciples fast? And they're a little upset about this sin of omission. They said in verse 18, how is it that your disciples don't fast? And then verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Let me ask you a question. Who's the bridegroom in this passage? It's Jesus. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God refers to himself as a husband or a groom, and he refers to Israel, his people, as a wife or a bride. And Jesus is now saying, I am the bridegroom. I am the Lord. I am here. The kingdom is here. The future is now. This is a time to celebrate. And then he says in verse 20, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. So Jesus was tapping into something that they understood and experienced. Jewish weddings, um, and I've heard Pastor Blaine talk about this when he's uh, talked about uh, on John 14, the first couple of verses, where Jewish weddings were a week-long uh, festival. They, it was a big party and a celebration. It was one of the largest social events of the village life. And Jesus is saying, you know what? We're getting ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb, for that day that is yet to come. But he said, this is a time because I am here to celebrate. And then he goes and gives two analogies. One about, he's saying, what I'm doing is new, and you can't just graft the new onto the old. And he talks about a garment that is torn. And he said, you wouldn't just put a new unshrunken patch onto that garment, because what it'll do is it'll pull away and the whole thing will rip. But then the other analogy is that of wine in wineskins. And Jesus says, what we have here is like new wine. New wine, when it's put, an old wineskin, you know, just from overuse becomes, it becomes brittle over time. And new wine is active and bursting with life. 
And it's kind of percolating inside that wineskin, and the skin bursts. And he's saying, there's just something incompatible with trying to patch the new onto the old. The gospel of the kingdom is like new wine. So when Jesus is present, it's a time to celebrate. And Jesus is present. We long for his return. We long for his return. And we hope for his return. But he's given us us his Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit of God is present, it's time to rejoice. And it's time to celebrate. God's future is now. His kingdom is here. And Jesus is making everything new. Then we get to verse 23. Verse 23 of Mark 2. It tells us that Jesus and his disciples were going through the grain fields, picking heads of grain and eating them. And what was interesting about this is they were doing it on the Sabbath day. And so the teachers of the law objected to what they were doing. And said, don't you know that it's wrong to do that on the Sabbath day? And then Jesus tells a story about David and his men doing something similar in his day. And then he adds this statement in verse 28. And he's referring to himself. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not made We were not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for us. Think about this. I know this. Um, Glenn Fallis, uh, in 2011, preached a sermon uh, leading up to our centennial celebration as a church in the city of Calgary. And I remember him talking about the Church of the Nazarene, and he's, he made reference to something that a lot of people who grew up in Nazarene homes said. We grew up and hated Sundays. Because in the Church of the Nazarene, Sunday was kind of like the Sabbath. It's actually Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night. But we thought of Sunday as the Sabbath. And we couldn't watch TV. We couldn't throw a ball around in the backyard. We couldn't do anything fun on the Sabbath day, on the Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And they said we grew to hate it. It just became so legalistic. And I remember Glenn Fallis talking about that. And I've never forgotten that message. And that's kind of what was happening here. They kind of turned it on its head. They were sort of like, we're made for the Sabbath. And he said, no, the Sabbath was made for us. And what this tells us a little bit about Jesus' attitude towards the Torah, towards the Old Testament. What he was really saying is that all of God's law, the Sabbath is a part of that, is for us. It's for our good. It's for our benefit. God's laws, his ways are beautiful. They give savor to life if we will just follow them. They're not restrictions, but they're prescriptions. And so the problem with Jesus' opponents was they put rules before relationships. Jesus put relationships before rules. And then we get to the last story, which is at the beginning of Mark 3. And again, it's a Sabbath story, and there's a man, Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's a man there who's got um, a crippled hand, 
And, and I think reading between the lines, it sounds like as though he couldn't use his hand. He couldn't use it. Maybe he had arthritis or whatever he had. And this is interesting. It tells us that Jesus' opponents stood back kind of like this, sort of on the sidelines, watching to see what he might do. Jesus saw a person in need and felt compassion. Jesus' opponents saw an opportunity to catch him doing something wrong. And they were blind to the needs of this man. Legalism can blind us to human suffering. An opportunity for compassion cannot wait for another day. Not when we have the means to do it now. Interesting. Here's how the Sabbath law worked. And this wasn't in the Bible. This was one of their traditions is if a life was being threatened, you could save that life on the Sabbath day. But if it's something that wasn't life-threatening, it can wait for another day. You don't have to do that today on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh. This man has a real need right now. And then he says, stretch out your hand. And the man's hand was restored. Jesus is teaching us something about God. That our God is a God of compassion. God isn't sitting there with a ledger or a rule book frowning down upon us. But when our hearts break, God's heart breaks. And so Jesus' enemies finally had enough of him. And it tells us in verse 6, chapter 3, that they went out to plot how they might kill him. We can expect that if we're doing the work of the kingdom, we can expect opposition. If you're about the kingdom of God and about the new thing that God constantly wants to do in order to reach those who are lost and suffering, we can expect persecution. The Bible teaches us that. That's one of the ways you know you're being effective. If people just leave us alone... Are we being the people of God that he's called us to be? That's the question I'm asking myself. Beware when all people speak well of us. But we have to know what hill to die on, right? That's one of the ways that we know we're being effective is when there's opposition. Somebody, I read this, People were getting the Pfizer vaccine, and there were some younger people in our church who got the double dose of Pfizer. And what I noticed is that younger people who got the double dose of Pfizer felt sick and actually had to take a day off. And then I read somewhere, they said, well, that's how you know it's working. That's how you know it's working. When we're persecuted and when opposition rises, we're doing the work of God. Or could be an indicator that we're doing the work of God. So what does all this have to do with you and me? I'm gonna, I want us to go into a place of prayer. Is the focus of institutional religion, which is what Judaism had become in Jesus' day in so many ways, is that it became about the past more than the present. It became about the old rather than the new thing that God wanted to do. Their idea of holiness was separation 
but they didn't realize that we can be separate but still be salt and rub shoulders with everyday people. A lot of these Pharisees were hypocritical. Some of them were authentic. The Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, I think he was authentic. He was just misguided. And so we need to be patient with people. The focus of the kingdom of God is the present and the future and the new thing that God wants to do. Folks, I want to just say, I really believe this, that where we're going as a church is way better than where we've been. Yet, we need to believe that. Otherwise, why come? Why be here? Why pray? I pray because I believe that where we're headed is much more glorious than where we have been. And so I want us to pray. And I just want you, and we're just going to just end in prayer, and I'm going to give a benediction. How do we respond to the message in Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3? Do we say, well, that's just interesting, good for Jesus? Or do we embrace it and realize that Jesus set an example for us to follow? And he left his spirit. He poured his spirit out upon us so that we could carry on his work and continue to proclaim his kingdom. So for those of us who are believers, watching, listening, are you on the right side of history or the wrong side? Are you a sheep or a goat? Are you a Jesus follower or a rule keeper? Would you right now just say, Lord, I receive your kingdom, your rule, your lordship in my life. Jesus is Lord. Be the Lord of my life. I submit to you. And I just want to say to all of us, including myself, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because that's how his kingdom becomes real for us. Ask God to transform your mind today. If your thinking has been wrong, God still loves you. Jesus loved Nicodemus. God loved Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Even when he was going down the wrong path, God loves you. He's patient with you. But let him work in you a new work so that he can work through you. Let him renew you every day. And if you're here and you're suffering or you're racked with guilt and shame and you know that you're not worthy, I have good news, none of us is worthy. Jesus came to deliver us, to heal us, to make us whole. Maybe you're like that paralyzed man that Jesus forgave his sins and then healed him. Maybe you're like him and you're thinking, I must have done something to deserve this life of mine. I've done something wrong. Somehow 
God is punishing me. And all I can tell you is this, is that that is not your fate unless you choose it. If there's anything we learn from the gospel of Jesus Christ is that if we will repent and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, today can be the first day of the rest of your life and you can start anew. He has authority to forgive you and to make you new. Or maybe you're like Levi and you feel, I'm too sinful. How could God accept me? How can God make room at his table for somebody like me? Well, that's why Jesus ate at the house of Levi. He said, if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will fellowship with him and he with me. You don't have to wait to receive his mercy, his compassion, his love. If you'll just open your hands and open your heart, he's ready to pour it out on you now. Thank you, Father. Just in these closing moments of the service, maybe if you're comfortable doing it, cup your hands. Hold your palms upward and say, Lord, I receive your kingdom. Holy Spirit, come. Transform me so that I can bring transformation to others and so that I can be the change I want to see in this world. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you.